If you would take your Bibles, please, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 26. The book of Acts, chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in a pew nearby. Let me begin by reading the first eight verses of this chapter. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion." And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? What does the resurrection of Jesus mean to you? I think that's an interesting question because it can be answered in different ways depending on who is providing the answer. Unbelievers might respond by saying that the resurrection means nothing to them. After all, if you don't believe in the resurrection, what can it possibly mean? Christians who understand their faith might respond by saying that the resurrection means everything to them. Scripture says that Jesus was raised for my justification. My entire salvation rests upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Others may make some kind of profession to Christianity, but don't really understand what it is they claim to believe. They may understand that the resurrection is supposed to mean something to them, but they really have no idea what that might be. There are many who claim to believe in the resurrection, but the resurrection makes no difference to them at all. Lots of people claim to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but their lives are no different than the one who denies it entirely. So this morning I would ask you to consider what difference the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes in your life, if any. Here in Acts chapter 26, Paul is defending himself before a number of Roman dignitaries. Paul is on his way to Rome, and as he's making his way to Rome, he stops 
in several places. He's not going on his own. He's being dragged there in chains. And, and along the way, he appears before various Roman dignitaries to give a defense. In Greek, it's the word apologia or apologia, depending on how you put the accent. And it's not an apology in the sense that he's saying he's sorry for anything. He's making a defense. He's explaining why he preaches what he preaches. And here he is before these Roman dignitaries. There is the Roman governor Festus. There is King Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. And there are many other officials all gathered together, we are told. If you look down in verse 30, we're told that the king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And they're gathered here together at the Roman capital of that region, which is Caesarea. The primary figure in this account, however, of course, is the Apostle Paul. But in regard to the dignitaries present, here in this part of the account, Agrippa plays the primary role. He was Agrippa II, the son, obviously, of Agrippa I. Not hard to figure that out. You can read about him in Acts chapter 12. Like his father before him, Agrippa II ruled over Galilee and some other territories to the north of that province. In the course of Paul's defense before Agrippa, we hear Paul's own testimony regarding his conversion to faith in Christ. The third time in the book of Acts, which Luke relates to us Paul's testimony. Paul's testimony itself is strong evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul declares, in fact, that everything which has happened to him from that day on the road to Damascus to the present day as he stands before Agrippa is due to the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Paul had been a persecutor of the church, but something had changed. Now he stood before Agrippa as an apostle of the one he had once persecuted. Now, he says, he went about fulfilling the commission that the risen Lord Jesus gave to him to go to the Gentiles so that they might hear the gospel and they themselves might then turn to God. In verse 18, he says that, he was sent to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith. He goes on to say, King Agrippa, I did not, di I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That commission he was given was the proclamation of a message. And the message was actually very simple. It is the same message that we proclaim today. 
that Jesus Christ died for sin, was buried, and rose again from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, you should believe and repent. To connect that message with what we said a few moments ago, if we truly believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, if we claim to follow him, then our lives will show it. It will have an impact upon who we are and how we live day by day. Repentance is not optional. You can't separate repentance from genuine saving faith. It is the mark of genuine conversion. Discipleship is not optional. You can't separate it from genuine saving faith. It is the mark of genuine conversion. Paul's defense makes two main points. First, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact. And second, repenting of your sin and turning to God is the only reasonable response to that fact. So let's look at each of these in turn. First, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a fact, a historical fact. As we can imagine, the audience to which Paul speaks at this point is what we might call skeptical. These are not Christians he's speaking to. These are not those well-versed in the theology of resurrection. They don't have decades of Easter Day church attendance behind them. So Paul can't take anything for granted. He cannot assume a familiarity with the Christian story. He cannot assume a common knowledge base. And in many ways, we find ourselves back in that same situation again today. There was a time when a preacher could make those assumptions. There has never been a time when a preacher could assume that all of his hearers were genuine believers, but there was a time, up until the last half of the last century perhaps, when Western civilization was so influenced by Christianity that a preacher could take for granted that most of his audience, at the very least, had a passing familiarity with the story. That's not the case any longer. When we share the gospel, we can't take anything for granted. We find ourselves today in much the same situation as Paul in the first century as he traveled through the Roman Empire. We are going to confront people who are biblically illiterate, who don't have the basic understanding of what Christianity is all about. We can go out on the street and we can interview people on the street and ask them, what is Easter about? And we will inevitably, on the part of some at least, receive blank stares in return. That was Paul's situation. 
So Paul doesn't state right up front, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You'll remember what had happened in Athens when Paul was speaking to the Athenian philosophers at the Areopagus. Luke writes about it in chapter 17 of this same book. Paul began there with the fact that God is the one who is the creator and Lord of heaven and earth. This God, Paul told them, is sovereign over everything and everyone. In him, he says, we live and move and exist. It is this God who is declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. And then Paul spoke of the resurrection. And Luke says that when he spoke of the resurrection, that's when he lost his audience. And they began to sneer. So Paul knows the kind of reception that the resurrection receives from those whom God is not calling to himself in that moment. So he doesn't start there. He mentions it early on, but he doesn't immediately unpack what it means. Eventually he will. And when he does, Festus interrupts to say that he is out of his mind. Look at verse 22. So having obtained help from God... I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Something of which I have never been accused. But Paul doesn't explain the resurrection right away. Rather, he begins by simply addressing the possibility of resurrection in general. And then he goes on to describe his own encounter with the risen Lord and the changes which were brought about in his own life as a result. And then he relates the message that the risen Lord told him to proclaim. And finally, he comes to the foundation of his message, namely, that according to the scriptures, Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And as he does all of this, Paul simultaneously gives four Proofs of the resurrection. And the first is this. You see it there in verse 8. Resurrection in general is possible because God. It's not a complicated argument. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? And his argument is simply this. We're talking about God. If God could create everything that is and sustain everything that is every moment of every day, surely he is capable of raising the dead. 
And Paul, he begins this whole defense by telling of his early life in Judaism and identifying himself with the hope of God's promise to the Jews, namely the coming of Messiah and his kingdom. You see that in verses 4 through 7. That promise would have been worthless to the Jews from past generations, he says, if there was no resurrection from the dead. Yet, It was for this Jewish hope that Paul's Jewish kinsmen, the Sadducees, were accusing him. Now Paul's being accused by both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They together make up the Sanhedrin. We spoke about this Friday night. The Sanhedrin is the highest body of authority within Israel at the time. And there are two sects which are primary in Israel at the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And so when Paul has opportunity, and he's addressing both of these groups, one of the things he does is to address the resurrection as that wedge which will separate his enemies. There's an occasion in which Paul is doing this. And he says, what I'm really on trial for here is the resurrection. And then that gets it started. Pharisees and the Sadducees, they start to argue with each other. And they forget about Paul, which I think was his plan. I've mentioned in the past, I've seen this happen at ordination councils. Someone will mention some article of doctrine that various people disagree on and the people who are supposed to be examining the ordination candidate will start arguing amongst themselves and they'll just forget about the guy and if he's smart he's not going to say a word (laughs) let everybody else take up the time with their own arguments so the Sadducees are accusing Paul and Paul wants it understood What I'm on trial for is the resurrection. He says in verse 6 and 7, Now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. Not individuals, the twelve tribes. We hope to attain this in the future. As they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? What is the hope? What is the promise? It is that of resurrection. If you believe in the God of the Bible, Paul's arguing, then you must necessarily believe that he has the power to raise the dead. And as Paul will go on to assert... The fact that God raised Jesus bodily proves that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. His logic here is solid. If you believe in the God who created all things and spoke life into existence, you must also agree that he has the inherent power to raise the dead. The second proof that Paul puts forth in regard to the resurrection is eyewitness testimony. You see that in verses 12 through 16. 
While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when, we had, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. And so Paul recounts his own dramatic encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus road. And skeptics, of course, would say that Paul only saw a vision or he was hallucinating. This isn't the actual risen Lord Jesus. And if Paul had been the only one to make this kind of claim, then perhaps we might have to concede the possibility of that, or at least not build our case upon it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, which Paul, the same Paul, is writing, there he states that the risen Lord appeared to Peter and to all the other apostles, as well as to over 500 of his followers at one time. And Paul makes the point when he says that, that most of those 500 are still alive. And why does he bother to mention that? Because he's saying, you can go check it out. You can interview them. Go sit down and talk with them. One commentator has written correctly, now it is perfectly possible for one man to have a hallucination. And two men might have the same hallucination by a singular and extraordinary coincidence. But that 11 men of intelligence whose characters and writings indicate their sanity in all other respects, or that 500 men in a body should have the same hallucination at the same time stretches the law of probability to the breaking point. Concerning Jesus' resurrection, J.N.D. Anderson wrote this, the most, the most drastic way of dismissing the evidence would be to say that these stories were mere fabrications, that they were pure lies. But so far as we know, not a single critic today would take such an attitude. In fact, it would really be an impossible position. Think of the number of witnesses, over 500. Think of the character of the witnesses. Men and women who gave the world the highest ethical teaching it has ever known and who even on, their t on the testimony of their enemies lived it out in their lives. Think of the psychological absurdity of picturing a little band of defeated cowards cowering in an upper room one day and a few days later transformed into a company that no persecution could silence and then attempting to attribute this dramatic change to nothing more convincing than a miserable fabrication they were trying to foist upon the world. That simply would not make sense. Now someone may think 
That's great for those who actually saw the risen Christ, but I've never seen him. Why should I believe? You should believe because you live your life day by day on the basis of the same type of evidence and, in fact, upon a lesser level of the same type of evidence. We all believe in things we cannot see and people we do not know. We trust that the people who package the food you buy at the store did not poison it. You trust that the mechanic who fixed your brakes did a decent job. You trust the teller at the bank to deposit your money in your account and not steal it. Your evidence for all of these things consists of something far less than 500 eyewitnesses. But in the end, the most reliable testimony is not the testimony of men, but of God himself. If you trust the witness of men, the witness of God concerning his son is greater. This is what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. God will hold each one accountable for their rejection, not only of the eyewitness testimony of men, but of the testimony that God himself has provided. Paul's third proof of the resurrection of Christ is that Jesus' resurrection is proved by the changed lives of those witnesses. Paul had been relentless in persecuting Christians. He was traveling all over, seeking them out, arresting them, even at least on one occasion that we know, contributing to the death of the followers of Jesus. In verse 11, here in chapter 26, he says, I punished them often in all the synagogues. He says that he tried to force them to blaspheme. He says he was furiously enraged at them. And yet, here he is, a prisoner now for the cause of Christ, having endured persecution himself because of his faith in Christ. But he is not bitter or hateful toward his enemies. How did this hate-driven terrorist change into a man compelled now by the love of Christ, willing to lay down his own life in order to tell others about Jesus? The only explanation that makes any sense is a risen Savior. All the other apostles were also radically transformed. Would these men have died martyrs' deaths for what they knew to be a myth, 
and a hoax. Just ask yourself this question. Why would the Jewish writers of the New Testament invent a resurrected Jesus? Why would they claim that a man who claimed to be God rose from the dead if it didn't happen? Remember who these men were. They were first century Jews. They were, for the most part, men of the book, that is, the Old Testament scriptures. They knew their Old Testament. Much of what Jesus taught when they were with him, they didn't understand. On occasion, they actually told Jesus, yeah, I think you're wrong about this. These were not 21st century skeptical liberals, political or theological. When we understand that, we understand certain things about these men, which apart from the reality of the resurrection, would have made it unthinkable that they would have invented such a thing. In the first place, they would have no motive to invent a resurrected Jesus. They already thought they were God's special chosen people. If Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then they would have considered everything he taught, which did not line up with traditional Judaic teaching of the day, to have been wrong. Why on earth would these fishermen invent a resurrection? But on top of that, just a little bit of thought ought to convince us that if for some bizarre reason they concluded that it would be a good idea to formulate this lie about raising Jesus from the dead, or Jesus being raised from the dead, I should say, they never could have pulled it off. Remember where this happened. First century Jerusalem. Now, we call Jerusalem a city, but we're not talking about a city as we know it. This isn't New York or Chicago or London. We sit here this morning in a place called Mayapak, New York. The area of Mayapak is 7.32 square miles. I looked it up. <laughs> this is not in my base level of knowledge. Right? Within that 7.32 square miles is a population of just over 9,000. You know how big Jerusalem was in Jesus' day? First century Jerusalem had an area of three quarters of a square mile. You know what the population was? Estimates vary anywhere from 50,000 to 200,000 in three quarters of a square mile. So imagine that kind of population density on such a small geographic footprint. What does that tell us? It should tell us that there ain't nobody stealing a body who is not going to be seen. You know, we are blessed. In this country, we have something called the Constitution. And within that constitution is something called the Fourth Amendment. And the Fourth Amendment says this. 
The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. I wonder if you realize how rare is that protection that we enjoy. I guarantee you no such legal protection existed in first century Israel. You know what they did have? They had a Roman occupation. They had a puppet king. They had a Sanhedrin which had already demonstrated in the way they conducted Jesus' trial that they had no problem violating the law even if there had been a law keeping them off and out of your property without a warrant. If it were possible, the authorities could have produced the stolen body of Jesus in a very short time. Someone would have seen them. Someone would have searched and found the body. Let's say the disciples did agree to steal the body. How long do you think these 11 would have kept that secret? You think James and John, who were so intent on taking the best places in the kingdom, were going to keep their mouths shut? Let's not even talk about Peter. If you're not familiar with something called the Babylon Bee. They run a website specializing in Christian satire. And just this past week, they published a video in which the disciples are planning to steal the body of Jesus. Now remember, this is satire, so the point of the video is to demonstrate just how absurd and ridiculous that idea is. So there are the disciples out in the middle of nowhere at night huddled around a fire, and Peter is telling the others about this plan he's come up with. And so Peter says, now as you know, Jesus is dead, but stick with me, stick with me, I have a plan. We're going to steal his body. And then we're going to tell the whole world that he rose from the dead. And the others start to laugh, say, oh, this is going to be great. It's just an epic prank. Then what, Peter? Then what? And Peter says, and then we're all going to get brutally murdered. (laughs) Now, John doesn't want to be a wet blanket, but he's not really getting it. He says, well, yeah, that sounds really good, Pete, but... um, Could you go over that one more time? I think I'm missing something here. Um, What's in it for us? We get get riches and fame and and, and fortune first, right? Before the brutally murdered part. Peter says, no, no, get this. You're going to be hated and persecuted and reviled for the rest of your life. And then brutally murdered. And John asks, wait, 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 wait. again, I've got to be missing something. Why on earth would we do this? This sounds like the most idiotic plan of all time. And one of the other disciples says, do I really have to explain the joke to you? Look, it's that we lie about Jesus' resurrection 
and then we all die. It'll be the greatest prank of all time. And it ends with John saying, I am out of here. I'd rather be exiled to a deserted island than spend another minute with you wackos. At which time one of the other disciples comes up and puts an arm around his shoulder and says, have I got some good news for you? No one saw them remove a body. No one could produce the body. And the eleven maintained their story to the gruesome end without the slightest wavering, even in the face of exile, torture, beheading, and crucifixion. Because the body of Jesus wasn't stolen, it was raised. Finally, Paul puts forth a final proof here. He says that Jesus' resurrection is fulfilled not only or is demonstrated, proved not only by eyewitnesses, but also by fulfilled prophecy. Paul affirms that he's saying nothing except that which the prophets and Moses had said before him. Look at verses 22 and 23. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. That the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul could have, and probably did, go into far more detail than this. He could have quoted from Genesis 22, from Isaiah 53, from Psalm 16, from Psalm 22, all of which prophesy the Messiah's death and resurrection, written centuries before the actual events. In all of this, Paul was making the point that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was a historical fact. Such a miracle is possible because God exists. It is proven by eyewitness testimony and the changed lives of those witnesses. It is supported by the Hebrew scriptures. But we must ask again, so what? Here is Paul's answer. If all this is true, then the only reasonable response is to repent of your sins and turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul declares this quite directly in verse 20. He says, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Repentance is not separate from saving faith. It is a necessary aspect of saving faith. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the risen Savior, then you turn to God from your sins. Everyone by nature is born into this world a captive in Satan's domain of darkness. Both Jesus and Paul describe our condition as being slaves to sin. That means that we need a change of master from Satan to God, from self to Christ, from serving sin 
to serving the Lord Jesus. This means that we need to examine ourselves. You need to examine yourself to see whether you have truly repented of your sin. Have you done what Paul describes in verse 18? Turn from the darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. In doing so, they receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ. If you have done that, then your life will have changed. And as you go back and you look at what has occurred in your life from the time you made a profession of faith in Christ to the present day, have you seen that change take place? Notice at the end of verse 20, Paul says, when this happens, when the Spirit of God draws one to the Savior, when the heart is changed, when the heart of stone is removed and replaced with the heart of flesh, what is going to happen? That person will perform deeds appropriate to repentance. The deeds follow the repentance. Our lives change. Not because we go on a course of moral transformation, but because God changes us. Biblical repentance is not just a change of mind or an intellectual decision. It is a turning of the whole person from sin to God, resulting in a life of obedience to God from the heart because we now possess a new heart. And then Paul personally addresses Agrippa. Verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And before Agrippa can even respond, Paul answers his own question. I know that you do. And Agrippa did, but he only believed them intellectually. Just as many Americans will say they believe in Jesus intellectually, but it made no difference to the way he lived. He was a wicked person. But Paul was not just preaching for intellectual agreement. He was preaching for repentance. And so am I. Repentance means that you believe in the risen Savior with such conviction that it transforms you, that your life is no longer the same. Instead of living in darkness, you now live in the light of the presence of God. Instead of living under Satan's domain, as Paul refers to it here in verse 18, you live in the domain of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, living in line with his word. Instead of living for self and pleasure, you now live to please him, the risen one. Now Paul has Agrippa cornered. If he denies his belief in the prophets, he would lose faith with the, face with the Jews. If he agrees with Paul, then he could see that the next question would be, why don't you believe in Jesus then? But Agrippa wasn't ready to go there. And so he tries to avoid the issue with this uncomfortable sarcasm. Verse 28, Agrippa replies to Paul saying, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. 
and you can hear the laughter in the room, can't you? In order to save face before this pompous crowd, Agrippa threw away his opportunity to receive God's forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. Don't follow that example. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Good for you. If you do, that's wonderful. You are right to believe it because it is true. But if that belief has not led to a life of repentance from sin, it will not do you any good when you stand before God. Because intellectual assent is not enough. Intellectual assent is not conversion. I have sitting on the shelf of my office a book written by a rabbi about the resurrection of Jesus. And at the end he concludes Jesus really did rise from the dead. And yet he never comes to the place where he believes that Jesus is his Messiah. There is intellectual assent, but there is also a dead heart. Intellectual assent is not enough. Saving faith entails repentance. Saving faith results in a changed life. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and now you must answer the question for yourself. So what? Father, we pray that through your word this morning and the work of your spirit that you might awaken those who are asleep. That you might transform those who are dead. Take from them, Father, the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that they might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Do so, Father, by your grace, for it is all by your grace. And we will praise you, because Jesus lives. And because he lives, we too will live. Thank you, Father, for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.